apparently at Revelation. <laughs> so that's a good thing. And you will want to get out your sermon outline that says Victory of the King on it. Have that out to follow along. No, there's nothing special going on today. It's just cool enough out that I can start wearing my robe again. So I guess there is something special. It's communion, and it's another Lord's Day, and that's always uh, special. But other than that, it's mostly because it's not too hot. Um, so hopefully you'll turn in Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It's the last two verses in the introduction uh, to this chapter and to this book. But these are really, really key, important verses. So we, we want to spend some time with them. Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, we continue to make our way through Revelation, uh, once again we ask that you would please help us. We know there's a lot that we need to learn from your word so that it can impact our lives. We know we want to be the king of our own lives. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives and enable us to repent of our sin and selfishness and help us to meet the real king in these words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Whenever I travel, uh, one of the things I love the most is coming home. And uh, even after being gone for just a few days, you begin to miss the familiar. You know, home cooking, sleeping in your own bed, the dinner table conversations with the family, long hugs from your wife. So I very much look forward to coming home. But I think the best part of coming home is when you actually walk through the door and the cry goes up, dad's home. And however many kids are home, uh, come to the front door with hugs. And it was somewhat more exciting when they were little. None of my children are little anymore. But when they were little and three or four of them could hug you at the same time and kind of hang on you at the same time and now it's more of a, a quick hug and questions about the trip. But when they were younger, they would often greet me at the door and we'd do sort of the hug and hanging on thing. And then they'd just sort of hang around, you know, kind of waiting expectantly until someone would blurt out the question that they all wanted to ask. <laughs> Did you bring us anything? And I'd usually stall and mutter something like, gee, I don't know, was I supposed to? You know, maybe there's something in my suitcase, can't really remember. And they would cry out with something like, come on, come on, let's see, what'd you get? And whereupon I would pull out whatever it was, t-shirts or hats or various trinkets and postcards, always postcards, Sarah collects postcards. Um, 
And so I was thinking about this because in a few weeks I'm going to Atlanta for a few days as part of my responsibilities as a member of the denomination's administrative committee. Now suppose for a moment that I didn't come home. Suppose I just called home and said, you know, things are really busy and I'm not going to be able to come home anymore. But not to worry, I'll still send the t-shirts and the hats and the trinkets and the postcards and I'll send them every week. How do you think that would go over? Probably not too well. Because deep down, we all know that it's the person, not the presence, which makes coming home special. It's not the frills, it's the father. Now imagine God making us a similar offer. I will give you anything you desire, anything, perfect love, eternal peace. You will never be afraid or alone. No confusion will enter your mind. No anxiety or boredom will enter your heart. You'll never lack for anything. There'll be no sin, no guilt, no rules, no expectations, no failure. You'll never be lonely. You'll never be hurt. You'll never die. Only you will never see me. You will never see my face. Would you want that? Neither would I. Who wants heaven without God? Heaven is not heaven without God. And a painless, deathless eternity uh, might be nice, but inadequate. And a world uh, that's shot through with splendor might stagger us, but it's not what we seek. What we want is God. And we want God more than we even know. And it's not that those perks aren't attractive. It's just that they're not enough. And it's not that we're greedy. It's just that we're his. And as St. Augustine said, and he was right, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Only when we find him will we be satisfied. Now, Moses can tell you that. You all know about Moses. He was one of the big guys in the Old Testament. He had as much of God as any man in the Bible. God spoke to him in a bush. God guided him with fire. God amazed Moses with the plagues. And when God grew angry with the Israelites and withdrew from them, he stayed close to Moses. In Exodus 33, we read, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Moses knew God like no other man. But that wasn't enough. Moses still yearned for more. And Moses longed to see God. And he even dared to ask God, Exodus 33:18, please show me your glory. Postcards and hats aren't enough. And apparently a fiery pillar and manna in the morning is insufficient. Moses wanted to see God himself. And don't we all? Isn't that why we long for heaven? We may speak about a place where there's no tears, no death, no night, no fear. But those are just benefits of heaven. The beauty of heaven is seeing God. And our heart will only be at peace when we see him. The psalmist says in Psalm 17, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, 
I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Satisfied. That's the one thing we're not. We're not satisfied. You know, as a child, we say, if only I were a teenager. And as a teenager, we say, if only I were an adult. And as an adult, we say, if only I were married. And as a spouse, if only I had kids. And as a parent, if only my kids were grown. And as an empty nester, if only my kids would come back and visit. And as a retiree in a rocking chair, we say, if only I were a child again. We're never, ever satisfied. Contentment is a very difficult virtue. Why? Because there is nothing on earth that can satisfy our deepest longing. We long to see God. And the leaves of life are rustling with these rumors uh, that we will see God someday and we won't be satisfied until we do. And we can't be satisfied, not because we're greedy, but because we're hungry. But we're hungry for something not found on this earth. Only God can satisfy. The Apostle Philip was right. In John 14, we read, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And therein lies the problem. God told Moses, again, Exodus 33, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Our deepest longing is to see God, but man shall not see God and live. You know, there's an old uh, a legend that the first American Indian to see the Grand Canyon tied himself to a tree in terror. And according to Scripture, any man privileged to peek at God has felt that same terror. Remember the words of Isaiah after his vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Upon seeing God, Isaiah was terrified. Why such fear? Why does he tremble so? Because upon seeing God, Isaiah is like wax before the sun, a candle in a hurricane, a minnow at Niagara Falls. God's glory is too great. His purity is too sterling. His power is too mighty. The holiness of God illuminates the sinfulness of man. And when Isaiah saw God, he didn't sigh with admiration. He didn't say, wow, that's remarkable. That's amazing. Glory is beautiful. He didn't applaud in appreciation. He draws back in horror. He says, I'm unclean. My people are unclean. The holiness of God highlights our sin. Listen to the words of another prophet, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Listen to that version. Don't read it. I know it's there in your outline. Listen to this in a couple other versions, New Century Version. Look, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him, even those who stabbed him, and all peoples of the earth will cry loudly because of him. Yes, this will happen. Amen. In the message that reads, listen carefully. 
riding the clouds. He'll be seen by every eye. Those who mocked and killed him will see him. People from all nations and all times will tear their clothes in lament. Oh, yes. The holiness of God highlights the sin of man. So what do we do? What can we do? If it's true, Hebrews 12 says, anyone whose life is not holy will never see the Lord. Well, where do we turn? What can we do? And once again, the answer is found in the story of Moses. Read carefully, very carefully, listen carefully the following verses here to answer this question, what does Moses do in order to see God? Here, I'll read it slowly. Listen carefully. It's easy to miss. Exodus 33, 21 to 23. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock when my glory passes that place. I will put you in a large crack in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Do you see what Moses was to do? Neither did I. Note who did all the work. God did the work. God's the one who's active here. God gave Moses a place to stand. God placed Moses in the crevice. God covered Moses with his hand. God passed by, and God revealed himself. Underscore that point. God equipped Moses to catch a glimpse of God. All Moses did was ask. All we can do is ask, but we must ask. For only in asking do we receive, and only in seeking do we find. And only God can equip us for our moment with the Son, S-O-N. I mean, hasn't he given us a rock too, the Lord Jesus? Hasn't he given us a cleft, his grace? Hasn't he covered us with his hand, his pierced hand? And isn't he on his way to get us? And just as I came home at the right time to my family, so God will come at the right time. And just as I brought my family gifts, so will God. But as splendid as the gifts of heaven are, it is not for those that we wait. We wait to see the Lord God, and that will be enough. He is worth it. And our passage this morning says so. So let's turn there, Revelation 1, starting at verse 7 and the promise of second coming. The promise of second coming. Should be his second coming. I left that out. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now last week I talked about this book being a drama in several acts, where we look at the same scenes uh, from different vantage points. However, as in most good dramas, it takes some time for the drama to unfold. So like any other good writer, John gives his readers a preview of what's going to come later in the book. And by so doing, he reveals, in some ways, the theme of the book of Revelation. It is a theme about the coming of Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, John presents a couple of key truths about Jesus' coming. And first, we see its necessity. Its necessity. Last week, I talked about how Jesus was the one who loves us, died for us, freed us from our sins by his blood, made us priests 
to his God and Father, this same Jesus who was raised from the dead will one day come for us and receive us to himself. And John wants to make sure that we get that. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And that exclamation, behold, is an arresting call to attention. He's saying, look at this. It's intended to arouse the mind and the heart to consider what's coming. This is the first of 25 times that he uses this in Revelation. John repeatedly says, I saw and I heard. And then he says, behold, he wants you to see and he wants you to hear what he's seen and heard. And this is a book that's filled with startling truths that demand careful attention. And so very fittingly, the first thing John calls attention to is this glorious truth that he is coming. Despite those scoffers who deny the second coming, which the Apostle Peter warned us about in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? However, the Bible repeatedly affirms that Jesus will return. That truth appears to us more, in more than 500 verses throughout the Bible. It's estimated that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. Jesus repeatedly spoke of his return and warned believers to be ready of it in all four of the Gospels. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth is a central theme in Scripture. And the clouds, it says he's coming with the clouds, and the clouds picture Christ's descent from heaven. More significantly, they symbolize the glory of God, that brilliant light that accompanies God's presence, a light so powerful no one can see it and live, and the appearance of the blazing glory of Jesus Christ, and the lesser brilliance of the innumerable angels who will accompany him will be an indescribable sight, and it will also be a terrifying sight. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, reminds us, speaking of Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So not only is Jesus' second coming in glory necessary to fulfill the scriptures, we also get some idea of its scope here. Its scope. John says, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords saying he is coming back, not through the clouds, not in the clouds, but with the clouds. He is bringing the Shekinah glory of God with him. And every eye ever made will see him, even the ones who pierced him with the nails and pierced him with the thorns and pierced him with a spear in his side. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And there will be people there at the last day who worship Jesus from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And Jesus is Lord over the nations. But at the same time, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people who have willfully rejected 
the lordship of Jesus Christ and saw no need for his atoning blood to reconcile them to the God of the universe. They have disregarded God's holiness and despised God's wisdom in sending his son to pay for sins. And they have assumed there is no offense and therefore no need for such a radical means of reconciliation in the death of his only son. So when Jesus splits the clouds and they see him and they're awakened to his glory and his blazing holiness and his absolute and perfect justice and his deserved wrath, they will know it's too late to change their ways. They have been eternally mistaken and lived for the wrong glory. And the text says, and they will wail on account of him. Now John's language here uh, in these verses echoes two prophecies. Remember how I told you the key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament, particularly the prophecies, and in particular Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And he's quoting two prophecies because these visions are so big and they're so great to John that he has to go to the Old Testament to get language to try to describe them. And so he does that. And he echoes the prophecy of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And John also has in mind the great prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12, which was our responsive reading this morning. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And you can see how John draws from the language of these great prophecies to try to explain what he's seeing and hearing so that we not just understand it, but that we can hear it and that we can see it too. I talked in a, a Sunday school class this morning. You got to be able to use your imagination to get this book. If you're one of those people who can't use your imagination, this is going to be really hard. Because John speaks of what he sees and he hears. And he uses this Old Testament language of images to communicate it. So you really got to be on your game when it comes to understanding Revelation. These two themes that we see in these prophecies, the glory of the kingdom and the mourning and the wailing when he comes, they come together in only one person, Jesus Christ. A couple of points worth mentioning. For one thing, our Lord's second coming cannot be limited to God's judgment upon Israel in 70 A.D., as some contend. The language that John uses here is universal, not local. 
every eye will see him. And in both the prophecies he draws from, Daniel and Zechariah, we see the Lord's coming in connection with, God's, uh, with Christ's everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It certainly implies the final judgment, resurrection from the dead, recreation of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, not merely the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman army. And the point is that the crucified one of Zechariah's prophecy is also the one that causes the nations to mourn. Furthermore, he's the son of man of Daniel's prophecy who approaches the Ancient of Days, who brings terror to his enemies when he comes in all his glory. can only be a reference to the final judgment, not just to the fate of Jerusalem. During the incarnation, when Jesus was here on earth, clothed in, in, in human flesh, his glory was veiled. And only Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of that at the transfiguration. But at his second coming, every eye will see him, and his glory will be obvious to the whole human race. God has promised, and so it will be. Amen. And so we can see the greatness of his second coming, the greatness of his second coming. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There is no stronger statement of the deity of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the New Testament. This is the first of seven such declarations about Jesus Christ found in the book of Revelation. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Notice Jesus doesn't say that he's the beta. That's for all you geeks. He's the alpha. And down, if we skip down to verses 17 and 18, he says, I am the first and the last. Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, uh, forever. Jesus is the same. He precedes you, and of course, he's eternal. He says, verse 18, behold, I am alive forevermore. And this is how John the Baptist could say about Jesus uh, at the beginning of his ministry in John 1. John, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus is dogmatically claiming that he is uncreated, that he always was and always will be. He claims, like his father, to have life in himself. Go back again to John chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in Colossians, I have to check. I often use this passage in communion, but not today. So you get it here. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 16 through 20 says, Speaking about Jesus, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is eternal reality. You are not the judge of the universe. I hope that's not new news to you. He is. And you are not the king of the universe. He is. And whatever you think about the origins of the universe, why I'm here, how do we get to God, how do I get saved, how do I save myself, you know, whatever's right and wrong, you know, it's all masquerading as our own intelligent pride, especially when you consider that God has already revealed his ways and his son to us in this book. Why would we think that we are the Alpha and the Omega and that we have the last word? And yet since the Enlightenment, Western thinking has been dominated by the thought that man is the measure of all things that God's been replaced and man's taken his throne and we'll determine for ourselves our Alpha and our Omega. Let me ask you this morning, what defines you? What is your Alpha and Omega? What are you living your life for? What are you driving for? Who made you? Tim Keller says that we need to have the guts to admit that if our Alpha is meaningless then our omega will be meaningless too. And then we need to be honest with ourselves and admit that our life is meaningless. You won't discover true eternal value and meaning for your life until you put the real alpha and omega as the north star in your life. From him you get all your bearings and direction. He is your compass. He is your all in all. I'm going to live for something that will outlast me. I'm going to live for him. I mean, I don't want to get into a whole big uh, creation argument here, but how can you say your life is meaningful and your life is significant if you're just an oops child in the universe? If you're a cosmic accident with no planned creator and your alpha is a monkey that I've seen at the National Zoo reach out and eat his own poo? How can that be satisfying to you? That's not a way uh, to live. It's, it's actually a way to explain God so that you can do whatever you want when it comes to morals and how you live your life and how you can live any way you want. And Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death in Hades. Could you imagine somebody else coming up to you and saying that? You'd say, what have you been smoking? If someone else said that to you, you would never, it wouldn't even occur to you to say what the modern scholars say. Oh, what a great man and what a great moral teacher I want to imitate his virtues, just like I want to imitate Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and Muhammad and Confucius. But you see, Jesus is not in the same category as those men. 
They're all dead, and the Dalai Lama will die too. They'll have another one, and he'll die too. And they'll have another one, and he'll die too. They're all dead. And Jesus is alive forevermore, and he holds the keys for all of these men. Mohammed has to answer to Jesus. Confucius answers to Jesus. Joseph Smith answers to Jesus. Gandhi answers to Jesus. Everyone answers to Jesus. He who holds the keys has all the power. Now, I learned that from a profound theological movie called Night at the Museum. <laughs> now, in that movie, there's a monkey named Dexter, and he keeps stealing the keys, and he has the ability with the keys to let people out of the museum. Well, Ben Stiller, who's pretty goofy, but that's just him. He's not acting. He has to get the keys back so he can regain control of who comes in and who goes out. There's more to it than that, but that's a big piece of it. But Jesus says, I hold the keys. Jesus has no rivals. He holds the keys. All people come through him. He controls your eternal destiny. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that may sound strange to our English-speaking ears, but to the recipients of John's letter, it would have made perfect sense. It's another way of saying this, I am A to Z. I am everything from aardvarks to zebras. I am everything from Albania to Zimbabwe. So God's not merely talking about letters. He's talking reality. And he's always talked that way. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And again, Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God has always said that I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. You know, one of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquests and the crusades of King Richard I. And while King Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on hard times, and his sly and graceless brother, John, usurped all the prerogatives of the king and mismanaged the realm. And the people of England suffered, and they longed for the return of the king and praying that it might be soon. And then one day, Richard came home. He landed in England, and he marched straight for his throne. And around that glittering coming, Many tales are told. They're woven into the legends of England, one of which is the story of Robin Hood. And John's castles tumbled like bowling pins. And Richard the Lionhearted laid claim to his throne, and none dared stand in his path. And the people shouted their delight, and the church bells all rang. The lion was back. Long live the king. And one day a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a realm greater than England. 
and those who have abused the earth in his absence and seized his domains and mismanaged his world will all be swept aside. Only those who have loved his appearing, who love him and acknowledge him as the rightful king, will enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. The night before his cruel crucifixion, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, initiated a new covenant by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And at this table, we remember his battered body and his splattered blood, but we also affirm a very powerful truth. Jesus is coming back. This is the theme of the book of Revelation. Let's celebrate the bread and the cup with a wonderful knowledge that we serve a victorious returning king. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this revelation. Thank you that it unveils to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, and more than that, to take seriously what is written, to keep these revelations and let them adjust our lives to what they reveal. Lord, as we come to your table, remind us that this table is about your Son, the King of Heaven, and his triumphant return. May your Holy Spirit have his way with us right now and lead us to repentance for all those times we don't follow the true king. We ask that you would do this in the name of the King Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.